So, as it's already been said, most of you aware today, I'm starting um, a sermon series on the book of Ruth. Now, why would I choose to do this? Well, let me give you some background. Um, as you may be aware, for three or four years, Michelle and I were pastoring in an Aboriginal community in Queensland. And what happened is a church, um, an hour and a half away, a Baptist church, rang me and said, would I be interested in coming and pastoring the Baptist church there? And, um, as you know, we eventually went there. So I went there as what is called an unregistered pastor for Queensland Baptist. So for two years, I had to do certain things and, you know, um, jump through certain hoops. And then I became registered. And what happens in the Baptist thing in Queensland, if you're a registered pastor and you've been a registered pastor for seven years and you haven't killed the church, um, you're allowed to apply for ordination. And what ordination is for Queensland Baptist is I had to go and sit five master level subjects at the college. We didn't have to go and do our masters, thank God, um, because they actually saw what we'd already done in the seven years um, was part of that. And so, yeah, and so I did that process and then Michelle and I were interviewed and, um, and so that, that's how I became ordained um, with Queensland Baptist. And one of the master's level subjects we're doing was obviously on biblical studies and we had to choose a book and we had to write like a commentary or a, um, an in-depth sermon series on this book, one from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it was interesting, like I was friends with the principal and he knew that I'd just completed preaching, I think it was a year and a half through the book of Revelation for our church. And I said, well, I've got New Testament covered because I'll just hand that in. And he said, you can't. <laughs> he said, I won't accept that. And so I've done one for the book of James too. So if you like this, maybe one day we could preach through the book of James. Um, and so I, yeah, did a fair amount of research. I interviewed Jewish rabbis. Um, I interviewed Orthodox Jews as well. I went around and I spoke with different people um, about the book of Ruth. And so that's really what you're seeing today and for the next 12 weeks is a result of a lot of that. And um, you'll be happy to know I passed. And um, yeah. And so what I found is, man, the more I got into this book... We can draw inspiration and guidance from all books of the Old Testament, don't get me wrong. But the book of Ruth seems to speak in a sweet, soft way like no other book. And interviewing people, I found the same. And so my hope in, is in doing this because this book is so familiar to us, but you will gain some new insights. You'll have some wow factors. You'll have some, well, I really didn't know that. And so having said that, before I start, how about I pray? Because that's what I want to pray for you guys and myself. Father God in heaven, I thank you that all scripture is inspired by you. And um, Father, I thank you for this book of Ruth that was written so many years ago, but still speaks truth today. Father, I pray that as we, for the next 12 weeks or 12 sermon series, I pray that you will give us, myself included, new insights. Challenge us on, on how we can live for you better by what we learn from this little book in our Old Testament. So, Father, we commit it to you afresh today. Open our hearts, open our minds, and open our wills. In Jesus' name, amen. So I guess, you know, a little bit of boring bit, but um, to start off with, background. What's the background of this book? Well, the first thing you must answer is, who's the author? Well, 
I'm happy to tell you, we don't really know. We don't know who the author is of this book. Jewish tradition says that it was Samuel who wrote it, but whether it was him or someone else, and as I just prayed, this book or whoever wrote it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Why do I say that? Because for me, this book is a diamond among many jewels of treasures in God's word. I could spend just time and time reading this. It's a splendid spiritual narrative that is delicate love story woven in to the gospel truth. What I found is in the book of Ruth, we see wonderful glimpses into the character of God in a special, precious and unique way, like no other book I've seen. Another interesting point of the background is this. For Jewish people, this book is extremely important. This book is one of five of the molecular scrolls that are read each year during the feasts. The Song of Solomons are read at Passover. Ruth is read at Pentecost. And I've got the others, but there you go. There's five that they read every year. Ruth is one of the five. Every Pentecost, this whole book is read. And so that's another part of the background. It's interesting, if you've got your Bible, feel free to have it open. I'm not really during from verses 1 to 3, but I will say it says this, it says this. But um, if you've got an older translation or anything like that, but this here is the way it was originally written. Whoops, what have I done? I don't know what I've done. I think I've missed a slide. Okay, so it's actually, this is the way it's originally written. And came to pass in the day when judges judged. That's great English. And came to pass in the day when judges judged. Now, I know most translations don't write it that way. Some of the older ones still start with that. But a book beginning with the word and for us would really be a confusing thing. Why start a book with and? Because isn't that a continuation of a sentence? I mean, if we were to read a book and the opening line was and, we would naturally think it's a continuation on from some other story. And for all intents and purposes, it is. The same and, believe it or not, is used 18 times in 18 different books in our Old Testament. 19 books in our Old Testament begin with this word and. Got them all written down, but my boy. Why start a book with the word and? That's just bad grammar, isn't it? What is the meaning behind all these books of and Ruth starting with the word and? Beginning a book with this word was intended to show the readers and us or point to a cause of action that has already taken place or begun elsewhere. When you start with that, we can know God is revealing and unfolding part of his wonderful plan to us. Ruth is part of revealing God's wonderful plan. While each book is not in chronological order, they are still woven together to reveal to us God's plan as if they were in a chronological order. Each book that starts with this word and reveals something of God's bigger picture his whole story of salvation in the Old Testament. And yes, Ruth is no different. The book of Ruth is beautiful and a majestic story given to ultimately show us the personal work of Jesus Christ. That's the bigger picture. That's the bigger plan.
So that's the background. The time. Verse 1 tells us the time. The narrator says, oh, this book happened in the time of the judges. John, I already spoke on it. That time when judges were around before the kings. This gives us a good chronological time frame from the, when the book was written. But is it important? Is it important to really know that the book was written in this period of time? Well, yeah, it is. Because the book of Judges um, begins in Judges 3 and continues on until Joshua dies. And then it continues on to the time the kings replaced it. It's found in 1 Samuel 10, a bit what Matthew's been looking at. Knowing that the author of Ruth said these things came to pass in this time when the judges ruled tells us a lot about the background of the culture and of the religious setting of the day. The book of Judges quoted here tells us something. It tells us about a period of history. What was that period like? It was a period of sin, idolatry, distress and poverty. All this came about because once God had brought his children into the promised land, God was to be their ruler and only ruler. But we read in the time of Judges, people turn from God. God wanted to be their ruler. God wanted to bless them, but they refused his leadership. They rejected his commands. They despised his principles and they ignored his warnings. The book of Judges is the story of Israel at one of its lowest points in history. It is a record of division, cruelty, civil war and national disgrace. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and they served Balaam. It was a period of distress due to God's hand of judgment. The anger of the Lord at this point of time, at the time of Judges, was hot against Israel. When people ask me, how would I best describe the time of the judges? I say it's pretty easy to do. In fact, it's already been done. The theme or the time period can pretty much be summed up in the following words, which were the last words of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the time this book was written. When the great theologian Cyrus Schofield was once asked about the book of Judges, he said there are two books in the Old Testament, starting with J. Joshua is a book of victory. Judges is a book of defeat. Another thing we learn about the time from verse 1, it is in the midst of a period of disobedience. We are told there's a famine in the land. How strange that there would be a famine in Bethlehem which means house of bread. But there was a famine. God always promised the Israelites the law of blessing and fruitfulness when they were obedient. But he also promised the opposite when they weren't. It is at this time, in the time of the judges, that they're experiencing the opposite for their disobedience. Because of their disobedience, they had a lack of God's blessing and fruitfulness. They were in a famine. The narrator says... There was a famine in the land. Famines in the Old Testament come about in many ways. Sometimes they come about by unfavorable weather conditions, lack of rain, sometimes because of civil wars, um, other times by wars waged against foreigners. But what may surprise you is this. It doesn't matter how the famine happened. None of them are unknown or undirected by God. 
None of them in the Old Testament. Famines were directed by God. They were used by him throughout biblical history to affect his will in the unfolding story of the world. From the time of Abraham all the way to Joseph, the patriarchs were affected by famines in ways that show God's purpose. Often in times of God's judgment, the famine there would be to serve to get people's attention. It was given to remind them that they were not in control. God was. They, all that what needed to happen was when a famine was given, you need to stop, repent and come back to me. And this famine in Ruth 1.1 was no different. The fact that there is a famine shows that Israel is in a state of disobedience. So as you can see, Ruth is written in a time of moral and spiritual corruption. And when Israel is suffering oppression and chaos because the people were not living in obedience with God. But nestled in this awful, violent period of human history is this beautiful love story. At this horrible time is this beautiful love story, a story of a lovely widow named Ruth and a godly man with a godly character named Boaz. How did it all begin? It says, So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This man, we are told in the next verse, his name is Elimelech. And he is told that he is from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. The reason for including Judah is because there's another Bethlehem mentioned in our scriptures. That Bethlehem is in Joshua 19. But the Bethlehem from Judah tells us something. The Bethlehem in Ruth 1 is the same Bethlehem where Jesus is going to be born some thousand years later. Now we don't understand what kind of Jew Elimelech was. As in, was he a man who obeyed and followed God? We don't know. But he was caught up in a place that wasn't obeying and following God. And sadly, sometimes the godly suffer because of the ungodly. Even the names of his son reflect the situation of his time. The name of his two sons are Malian and Chilion. These names reflect the sad state of affairs. Do you know what they mean? Malion literally means man of weakness or sickly. Chilion means wasting away. How great are names are they? Why would a parent choose to give these kind of names is unknown. But as I just said, most times the correct response when a famine, when they were facing a famine, was to repent and turn to God. They should have stopped and prayed and asked God to send rain. But we are told this one man, a man from Bethlehem, left. If you've got an older one or even up there, you will see the word sojourn or to dwell. This means that his plan was this. Sojourn means to leave point A and go to point B for a short time. Only for a little bit, so we can go back to point A. It means to move temporarily rather than live permanently. Last week, Matthew kept asking us the question, how do you save yourself when your back's against the wall? What do you reach for when your back's against the wall? Well, here we see quite clearly how Elimelech tried to save himself when his back was against the wall. 
Imelech's plan was, in order to be free from the Fremen and escape the consequences that Israel was facing, together with his wife and two sons, he would move from Bethlehem to another land for a short time. This move was no mean effort. Moab was located just across the Jordan River. Believe it or not, it's only about 70 kilometres. It's only a short trip. But because of the steep mountain terrain and needing to get past and go through the Jordan River, it would have taken them about 10 days on foot. So that's the journey they did. Now you may be sitting there thinking, big deal. No big deal. I mean, who in the same situation wouldn't look around and think, man, what's going on here? This is bad. I'm getting my family out of here. I'm going away. What husband and father wouldn't want to get out of this and begin a new life and provide for his family? If, now, not that we like to be told you're wrong, but if you're sitting there thinking, eh, no big deal, nothing really wrong with this picture, well, let me tell you, if you think that, you're wrong. You are very wrong. This journey is very wrong. What's wrong with the decision to get up and move 70 kilometres? Well, this is the reason. He went to Moab. Elimelech makes a conscious decision. What decision? He chooses to leave Bethlehem in Judah, the promised land, and go to Moab. He chooses to leave the land of his God and move to the land that was inhabited by people who worship pagan gods. He moved, dare I say, into enemy territory. The Moabites, the Moabites were descendants of Lot from his shameful act of drunken incense and deceit with his firstborn daughter. They were the Jews' enemies because of the way they hated Israel during their pilgrim journey. During the time of Judges, Moab invaded Israel and ruled over them for 18 years. They were a horrible people. Matthew mentioned last week how it was a bit of an insult to be called a Calebite because that meant dog. Well, there was something worse to be called and that was to be called a Moabite. The Moabites were a proud people. They were even a group that God despised. People say God loves everyone. Not sure if he loved the Moabites. So much so, in Psalm 60, the Lord says this, Moab is my wash pot. What's a wash pot? Do you know what a wash pot is? A wash pot is when an army goes and conquers a land and they bring those people who they've conquered back. Those people have to wash the feet of the soldiers that conquered them. Guess what it is? They wash them in a wash pot. To be called a washpot was a picture of humiliation. It represented a nation that was washing the feet of their conquered soldiers. But that's what God saw Moab. That's what he called them. That's how he saw Moab. Why would God call them that? When Israel was preparing to enter the promised land, it was the Moabites who sent Balaam to prophesy destruction upon Israel. It was also the Moabites who were the first one to seduce the sons of Israel into worshipping false gods. No wonder theologian Mark Dever calls them the Moabites are nothing but terrible people. But it was to these very people 
to this very land who Elimelech went to for rescue. Do you see the picture? When I did my sermon series on the church, I said people who are in church are wise and intelligent. That's you. Why? When we come to church, we are putting ourselves in a situation where the Bible is proclaimed. We can freely talk about our Lord. We can sing praises to him. Even Matthew made the comment last week in his sermon, when we come to church, we come to a blessed place. Well, let me tell you, being in Bethlehem in Judah, regardless of what's going on, he was in a blessed place. He was in the ultimate blessed place. Even though there was a famine in Bethlehem, Emiliac should have stayed. He and his family were in the place that God had designed for them. We must remember at the time of Israel was now in the land that God had promised them as part of his covenant. It was called the promised land for a reason, because God was there. In Bethlehem, Judah, Elimelech and his family could worship in the temple. He could present his offerings to the Lord and keep feasts commanded by the Lord. He could only do that in Bethlehem, Judah. But this man, Elimelech, which ironically means my God is king, went 70 kilometers to the neighboring land of Moab. He and his family were totally isolated from everything related to God I keep pointing, I think, in the pictures up there, sorry, by going to Moab. Elimelech and his family abandoned God's land and God's people. They weren't just abandoning them, he was transferring his passport. They were transferring God's land and his people for the land of the people of Moab. Or more literally, he was transferring God's land and his people for the land and people of their enemies. It would be like a crow supporter moving to Alberton. <laughs> Why should Eliminac do that? Why, as he sits there and thinks, I'm going to go here for help? Because he was walking by sight, not by faith. Eliminac did not take time to think about what he was leaving behind. Elimelech took his family away from the things of the Lord and brought them into the things of evil and wickedness. A bit like a... No, I better not say that. Elimelech intended... Remember, he only did this for a short time. He intended to move here, wait for the famine to end, and then head back. Sadly, the narrator points out how things quickly changed because this didn't eventuate. The narrator in verse, the last words in verse 2 said, they continued there. The literal translation is, they existed or they became. They became Moabites. How sad is that? Eliminic's family not became like the Moabites. According to the narrator, they became Moabites. Charles Spurgeon comments on, comments on these verses. He says, this is what generally happens. Those who go into the country of Moab continue there. If Christians go away from their, from their separated life, they are very apt to continue in that condition. It may be easy to say, I will step aside from the Christian path just for a little while 
to get my life together, then come back. He said, but it's never easy to return. Warren Worsby says these verses, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. How true is this for Elimelech? Even though Moab was only a short plan, he only planned to go there for a short time and escape. He became like the Moabites, but worse than that, we find in the next verse, his attempt to escape was extremely unsuccessful. Why? The narrator tells us what happens. He dies. He did. That's why if you saw the title for my sermon, it was The Cost of Moving. Time quickly passes in these opening five verses, and before we know it, we've jumped ten years. In approximately ten years of living, no more than a few verses are given in this little book. Only the details that are important are given to us. And so the story changes and then focuses on the next one, Naomi. After Naomi suffers this terrible loss of her husband, she's left behind as a widow to lead her two sons through their story. But she's without a husband and their sons no longer have a father, adding more to the cost of moving. Thankfully, though, she gets some good news. In verse 4, the narrator tells us, hey, Naomi's two sons, they meet people and they get married. Chilion married Opar. The name Opar is a Moabite name, not a Hebrew name. It means back of neck or mane. Her name will find its meaning in her actions a little later. Marion married Ruth. The name Ruth has two meanings. It means friend or companion or beauty or looker. Such is one who is attractive. Now, I'm not sure, but I'm, no, sorry, I'm quite sure that you know, Jews were forbidden to marry Gentile women, especially those from Moab. So how did Ruth let this happen? Sorry, how did Naomi let this happen? How did all this take place? You see, it was the Moabite women in Moses' day who seduced the Jewish men into immorality and idolatry. Numbers 25 tells us that as a result of what the Moabites did, 24,000 Israelites died. So God says, when you're choosing a wife, you have all this, but do not under any circumstances go there. You do not take a wife from Moab. So how did she let it happen? Easy. She'd become a Moabite. She continued, she existed, she became one. This family had become more like Moabites. So these marriages would have brought great happiness to Naomi. She would have had a dream of seeing grandchildren and the continuation of her family line. But very quickly, we're told by the narrator, that dream is cut short. Verse 5 tells us that after 10 years of marriage and no children, both her, son and all's, both her sons die. They're dead. The narrator is careful to explain that now Naomi is being left without anything. She is completely and utterly empty. She is now without her husband and her two sons. She is an old 
and an isolated widow. The worst possible fate imaginable for a woman at this period of time. She had no hope, especially being in the land she was in. Ameliak and his family had fled Judah to escape death, but three men met their death just the same. The cost of moving for this family was great. At the end, at the end of the decade of disobedience, all that remained in this story were three lonely widows and three Jewish graves in a heathen land. Everything else was gone. One commentator said, you want to know the theme of Ruth 1 to 5? It is this. A family who exchanges one famine for three funerals. Now, I'm sure you've worked this out. Whenever I preach, whenever I do a sermon, I always try and answer a very simple question. What question? So what? So what? I mean, if I was to stop now and sit down and say thank you very much, all that you would be left with really would be a good history lesson. And if you saw someone at work or someone outside this week and they said, uh, how was church, you know, and what did you learn in the sermon? You can say, oh, it was great. We learned about a family who exchanged one famine for three funerals. But what is the so what of these verses? Why are these verses even in here? Why are they in our scriptures? What can we draw, take away or identify with in these five verses? Now, I know most times this is a personal thing. God speaks and reveals different things to people, even from the same sermon, even from the same passage of Scripture. And maybe you already know the so what for you. Maybe you've been listening today or haven't been listening, and you've already identified something or someone within the story that the narrator has told us. Maybe some of you identify or draw compassion today with the time that the book has written. Those things we said were happening in the time of the judges. You know, I know some Christians that make this comment to me. Gee, I'm happy I was not living in those times. Where other Christians will say to me, well, spiritually speaking, we are living and experiencing today the exact same things that the people experienced when they lived in the time of judges. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you're sitting here and listening to this and thinking, don't we today experience national and international resentment against God? Aren't people really just living their lives and doing what they want? As we look around at our society today, is it possible to see moral decay, difficulties of every kind? Because of this, like the Israelites in the past, some of God's modern-day people are now living in unbelief and disobedience because some of them have left for a short time but never returned. They're not enjoying anymore the blessings of God. Maybe some of you straight away identify with Eliminac, and that's the so what. Perhaps it's not hard for you to imagine what he was feeling. Maybe you're in the midst of a time where you look around and everything feels hopeless. You can't see an end out. Because of this, you are living in fear or depression, or you're not sure how things can ever really turn around. While others say the so what for them is Naomi, perhaps you identify with her. 
Perhaps you've suffered great loss as well and you're still experiencing pain and grief over that loss. Or like Naomi, you find yourself in isolation and empty, left with no one. You know, I want to say if you identify with any of these, that's great. Continue to ask God to reveal more of what he wants, regardless of which area that you identify with. What does he want you to do in regards to this? And that, for me, is the most important question we can ever ask whenever we listen, whenever we open our scriptures. The very question is, for the so what today, as you read these five verses, whether you identify with the tough times of the judges these verses were written, the despair of Elimelech, or the emptiness of Naomi, or something completely and utterly different, Whatever you identify with, whatever God is revealing to you, ask yourself, what does God want me to do about it? There's no point sitting and listening to sermons unless we're willing to do the hard yards once we go. That's the so what for me. And you know the great news? The answer to that question is one of the major themes portrayed all throughout the book of Ruth and Scripture. The major theme of the so what for the book of Ruth, it's not a love story. The book of Ruth isn't even about a marriage. The book of Ruth, the theme is the importance of living by faith. That is the main theme of the book of Ruth. I believe Emiliac missed out on the blessings of God and ended up losing everything because he lived by sight, not by faith. What about us today? Do you believe as Christians today we can miss out on the blessings of God our Father because of our actions? I know some people say we can't look at what happened to Eliminac and his sons and say it can happen to us. That happened under the Old Covenant, the God of the Old Testament. We have the God of the New Testament now and our punishment is gone. I want to say I believe every word of that. I believe that's true. Elimelech was under a different covenant than we are under today because of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. While it's true, I do believe all our sins have been paid for and our punishment is gone. I also believe that the God of the Old Testament is still the same as the God of the New Testament. Sadly, some people have painted a picture of this New Testament God of a big Father Christmas type of God who lives in the heavens. Someone who really doesn't care about what we do. He just loves us. He just wants to give us gifts, pour out his blessings, regardless of what we do or where we go. I'm not sure about you, but I don't see this type of God in the New Testament. I still see in the New Testament who God wants his children to know him, to trust him, to follow him, to obey him, He still wants his children to walk by faith in him. What does that mean? How do you walk by faith? It means committing yourself to the Lord and relying wholly on him to meet your needs, regardless of what you're seeing going on around you. To walk by faith means in spite of what you see, in spite of how you feel, in spite of how you think things may happen, you proclaim the promises of God and obey the word of God. I think Matthew summed it up perfectly last week. He said, when your backs are against the wall, all you can really do is trust the saving hand of the Lord. 
That is living by faith. When we live by faith, it glorifies God, witnesses to a lost world, and builds Christian character in our lives. These first five verses are a bitter background. They're a horrible background to a beautiful book. In this sad section, there is death, two marriages, and two more deaths, all in the space of five short verses. They somberly remind us of the danger of leaving God's will, dwelling and living with the ungodly, and becoming worldly. Nothing's changed in that area. But as we continue to study this book, you're going to see, regardless of how bitter things may look, feel, or be now, God is in control and he loves you dearly. More than that, the book of Ruth reveals he has a plan for you that is good and right. When you submit to his ways, when you keep the faith, when you live according to his plan, even when it looks like your world is falling apart, you will find life that is truly life. You will find meaning and purpose. Your emptiness will be replaced with fullness. Because, as we will see, we can either accept, believe, and live by faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ, or not. You're free to walk out of here, say, this is too hard. For a short time, I'm going to give it a break, and I'll come back. But I guarantee you probably won't. In spite of your fears or hesitations or concerns, will you choose to trust God's method of transforming your life? I don't know what God's going to do or reveal to you in doing this book. I don't know what he's going to ask of you. I don't know if he's going to challenge you to give something up, change something, move something, whatever, in order to help you to trust him to live by faith. But remember, God's ways are not our ways. And by faith may seem scary, but when your goal is to live for God, you have to live by faith, not on what you see. Faith is being certain of what we know, regardless of what we see. Would you respond today in faith? Will you surrender to God's purpose and growth and transformation as we open up this book? I promise that if you do, your faith will become more real, more alive than you ever experienced or believed possible. So this morning, if you identify with the tough times of these verses, the despair of Eliminate, the emptiness of Naomi, or whatever you just take heart, truly, take heart. This story given to ultimately show us the personal work of Jesus Christ. It's not a love story. It's about the personal work. The major theme or the so what of the book of Ruth is the importance of living by faith. Same for the book of James, actually. The importance of accepting his love, gifts, security, and marriage to God and the offerings he brings to us through Jesus Christ. When you know Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord, the book of Ruth shows us that in spite of the alarms in the headlines, despite of what's going around us in the streets, you are a part of a beautiful love story when you choose to live by faith and not by sight. One to five, done. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I just thank you for your word and uh, for what it means. And um, Father, I thank you for 
those people that I have met that have brought this book to life for me, even in these opening verses, I never thought about him moving to other countries and what that really meant from a Jewish point of view. And Father, I thank you that we too can open up this word um, and study it. And above all, I thank you that from here on in it gets better. <laughs> I thank you that even though the first five verses are one of despair and grief, but from here on in we see joy, we see a God who is in control, and we see people who respond to that and are blessed by choosing to live by faith. And so, Lord, I pray that as we continue to open up, reveal things to us, challenge to us, and help us that as we leave, we will do those things that you ask us to do, not only on a personal level, but even as a corporate church. Challenge us as a church, a corporate group of people. May we never leave what we have here in this blessed place. In Jesus' name, amen.